Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. In this episode, I'm talking about the rights of nature with Mari Margill, the Associate Director of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, based in the United States. There's an unmistakable growing awareness of the ways in which our human lives and the environment are intertwined and interdependent. Unprecedented environmental degradation, resource depletion, and the looming reality of climate change have all drawn anxious attention to the human impact on the environment. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment is calling for a formal recognition of a human right to a healthy environment, a recognition of our dependence on the natural world for survival and well-being. The call comes on the heels of a shocking number of murders of environmental activists worldwide. Formal recognition of environmental rights would help protect those protectors of the environment, the argument goes. Law is critically important here. It governs how humans interact with other humans. It fundamentally structures society. But it also governs how humans interact with other entities, like businesses, the government, and the environment. Countries like Spain, France, Portugal, and Finland have already recognized a human right to a healthy environment, but some environmental advocates are arguing that this isn't enough. We need to recognize the inherent rights of nature itself. The limitation of a human right to a healthy environment is precisely the focus on humans. And this is a human rights podcast, so to be fair, we focus a lot on humans too. In this episode, we're going to talk about the possibilities and limitations of rights of the environment. What would this mean for nature? And what would it mean for us, humans? Mari Margill from the Community Environment Legal Defense Fund is here to try to answer some of those questions for us. So thank you so much for joining me, Mari. It's very good to be here. You're the Associate Director of the Community Environment Legal Defense Fund in the United States. Could you tell me a little bit about what your organization does? So the... Legal Defense Fund um, is a nonprofit, so an NGO, um, that began in 1995, based in the United States, and today we work um, in a number of places around the world. We began as a very traditional public interest law firm, um, providing free and affordable legal services, mainly to community groups that were looking to protect against some sort of threat to the environment in their home town. And our work has really expanded and evolved um, because we came to a place where we recognized that using existing conventional um, environmental laws were not sufficient to protect the environment, to stop um, threats from coming into a community. And it took us on a journey to where we are today in which we came to gain a very clear understanding of how legal systems work, why they work that way, who they're working for, Um, And then how do we make change when we come up against a legal system that doesn't seem to have protection um, of people, of the environment at the forefront, much like other people's movements have found when they come up against legal systems which have oppression um, or have prejudice at the forefront 
um, and recognize that there's a need to make a fundamental change within that legal system, we face a similar situation today. And so our work today at the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund is very much about recognizing how the existing legal system is aimed at endless production, endless growth, endless extraction, um, and the need to change that if we're to protect the natural world. So that sounds like a critical realization when you suddenly recognize that arguing a case within a legal system isn't going to work for you because the whole system is flawed. Maybe that's the point where we really start to think about rights, demanding a recognition of a new right. So when we talk about responsibility when it comes to the environment, I think first we probably think about governments, then maybe private companies, corporations, and increasingly we think about the burden on individuals. But you're saying that the law specifically has a responsibility and role to play here if we're really going to tackle issues like climate change. Can you explain a bit more about that? The role of law is absolutely central to addressing climate change. It's absolutely essential to addressing species extinction, you know, other environmental crises that we're facing around the world. What we have come to understand um, is how the legal system treats the natural world. And it treats the natural world as existing for human use and therefore establishes rules or regulations about how humans can use nature. And humans generally come together to use nature the most um, in the form of a corporation. So you have mining companies and drilling companies and fracking companies and so on that are legally authorized by the law to use the environment, to drill holes, to mine. You know, In the United States, we have mountaintop removal mining, which literally blows the tops off of mountains to get to coal that they want to mine. We dam rivers, we do massive um, fishing in the oceans, you know, that just sweep up millions of fish. And so we see the fisheries declining. The law authorizes all of these kinds of activities. It authorizes the use of ecosystems. It authorizes the use of species. It authorizes pollution of the air, pollution of the water, and of course, um, emissions that are causing climate change. And as we look to the history of how fundamental legal change, fundamental social change has occurred. So, you know, in the United States, as well as um, in the UK, there's the history of the abolitionist movement, of the suffrage movements. We share those histories in many ways. And the way that those legal systems were set up to legalize slavery, to authorize slavery, and with regard to women's rights um, and women's suffrage, to subordinate women. And so the legal systems themselves, it wasn't just the laws that legalized slavery you know, that were of issue. It was the system itself which protected and insulated that that needed to be changed. And we sit in a very similar place today because, yes, we have environmental laws. So in the United States, much like in other parts of the world, we have laws, you know, oil and gas laws that regulate how oil and gas drilling can occur. We have laws that regulate fracking, which legalize fracking to take place. We have laws which regulate how we fish, how we cut trees and all, and so on and so forth. These laws are very much about legalizing the destruction of the natural world. What mechanisms within the existing legal system really need to change in order to make it more responsive to sustainability and the needs of the environment? One of the central tenets of legal systems, and this is again in the United States and, and really around the world, is that today nature is treated as property under the law. 
So that means nature is considered to be without rights or rightless under the law, much like women were treated as rightless under the law. They were the property of their father. They were the property of their husband or their brother. Um, and today nature is treated similarly. Slaves were considered property under the law, um, property of their owners, and they were therefore allowed to be treated as property. What does that mean? It means that we, when we own property, when we own nature, which we do, we have the legal authority to destroy it. And we see that. I mean, with ecosystem collapse, with species extinction today at thousands of times natural background rates, and of course with climate change, treating nature as property has is leading to the destruction of the natural world because we don't protect it for its inherent worth, um, its inherent necessity. We don't recognize it as life-sustaining to us, um, and therefore we use it to meet what we consider our needs. Um, our wants, our desires. So a central tenet of legal systems today is this concept that nature's legal property, that needs to change. And what we've seen through history again is it's when we recognize something as most important that we put our highest legal protections on it. Our highest legal protection is the recognition of legal rights, as has happened in Ecuador. And we worked there about 10 years ago now in which Ecuador went through a process of constitutional drafting in which nature for the very first time in the world in a, in a constitution was recognized as having constitutional rights. Um, and that's you know, a very significant change, a, very, a transformation um, in how the law treats nature. You've mentioned the importance of elevating the rights of nature or the rights of the environment, and there are a few ways of thinking about rights. Rights attached to rights holders. Traditionally, those rights holders are human beings. Are human rights not enough to accommodate the rights you're talking about? Yeah, it's a terrific question. Many, many countries around the world have, through some form, through their constitution, through laws, other means, recognized the human right to a healthy environment. And we, in our work, um, as we assist people and communities and governments to advance rights-based laws, that's often incorporated, the human right to a healthy environment. But what we have found um, is that the human right to a healthy environment is impossible to achieve if the environment itself doesn't have rights. And an example, um, one example could be, you know, in India, where we've been working with NGOs for a number of years now to develop um, a national Ganga River Rights Act to recognize rights of the Ganges. And that law, that draft law, not only recognizes the fundamental inalienable rights of uh, what they call Mother Ganga or the Ganges River, also includes the rights of the people of India to a healthy, thriving river ecosystem. Those two things go together. But they have um, like a, a, a human right to water, a human right to a healthy environment in India, but it's proving inadequate because you can't achieve there um, a human right to water, a human right to a healthy environment when the environment is degraded, when it's polluted, um, when the river is desiccated the way that it has been. What we, what we found is that it's not enough. Um, to recognize our human right to a healthy environment and not rights of the environment itself. 
We know that rights always intersect, so human rights and the rights of nature would, of course, be very interconnected. And you already touched a little on this with the example from India, but what about the ways that a right to nature might help or support other human rights, like the rights of indigenous communities, for instance? Yes. Two things. I, you touched on one of them um, early in the question, is this concept that rights affect other rights. So your legal right your human, your human right to a healthy environment is absolutely affected by whether or not the environment has itself rights to be healthy. Um, and so I, I, that's quite right, that rights affect other rights. Um, you know, you've seen in some um, decisions within the Ecuador courts, the courts spoke to this concept of rights affecting other rights, that rights of nature are transversal, that they affect other rights within their constitution, the human right to a healthy environment, the human right to water. These things are interconnected. Specifically regarding indigenous rights and the rights of nature, this is an area of work that is so critical. You know, many have said that recognizing legal rights of nature or Mother Earth is really codifying into the law indigenous values, indigenous culture. Um, and when we have been working with indigenous peoples, as we did with the Ecuador constitution, indigenous delegates to their constituent assembly who are very much a part of this um, development of their rights of nature constitutional provisions. And, and even here at home for me with tribal nations, um, you know, we worked with the first tribal nation to advance the rights of nature into their tribal constitution. And it's really about securing this, this culture, this, this value system, this way of life um, into their written law. Um, and so we see that as one delegate to Ecuador's constitution told me that they saw you know, some years ago within Ecuador's constitution, their collective rights as indigenous peoples had been recognized in Ecuador. And they saw that the rights of nature expanded and strengthened their collective rights as indigenous peoples. These rights of nature laws, you know, we have dozens of them now enacted locally within the United States and communities. Uh, we see that in, now in some other countries as well. These laws are written not only by the people of a community or by a, a tribal nation or indigenous peoples, if that's um, who's working to advance it, these laws have some central common elements. One of those key elements is that they empower people to defend and enforce the rights of nature. So many of our laws today are, you know, very conventional environmental laws, don't do a whole lot for people in that people have very little capacity to actually try to enforce an environmental law. The rights of nature laws really recognize that. They recognize that in order to really truly protect nature, not only it's not enough to pass a rights of nature law, we have to provide people to be able to speak on behalf of nature, to enforce and defend these rights on behalf and in the name of nature. And that means empowering people, indigenous peoples, non-indigenous peoples, to be able to do that, recognizing that it's very much a, a collective effort for us to be able to protect the environment. We can't leave it to, um, you know, very centralized, privatized national governments to do this, that we, the people, have to be empowered to do it as well. It sounds like humans will have to mediate on behalf of nature when it comes to the law. Um, this kind of makes me think of 
Dr. Seuss's Lorax, who speaks for the trees. Are there parallels that you could draw where we need mediators like this to bring a case on behalf of an entity that can't stand in a courtroom? What precedents are there for this kind of mediation? Yes, there are many parallels in the law. So children, for example, um, and they don't have the legal ability to go into court to speak on their own behalf. You know, they often have a guardian um, or a parent who literally will speak for them in court. Um, You see that with people who are incapacitated, who might have dementia or some other reason why um, they're unable to speak on their own behalf in court. Um, And the law has created mechanisms for that to happen. Generally, what that means and what we've written into laws that we've worked with communities to enact on the rights of nature is they have certain provisions in there specifically to this. Generally, they're written this way, which is that people in a community or within a tribal nation, as well as their government, so a municipal government, a tribal government, have the legal capacity to go into court to bring a case, a lawsuit, to defend and enforce the rights of nature. So, for example, to be able to go on behalf of a forest into court, you know, it's, it could be you or me who goes into court to bring the case, but the case is actually brought in the name of an ecosystem, of a forest or other ecosystem or a species. Um, and that because it's as written into these laws, the ecosystem or the species or whatever aspect of nature it is, is considered legally the, the real party in interest. And this is important um, as we look at how the legal system treats those who have or are in possession of legal rights. One of the key elements of being what they consider a rights holder, you know, you hold rights. Nature, similarly, in order to be a holder of legal rights, it needs to be able to exercise those rights. And so the law has created mechanisms for those who can't literally speak for themselves to have others do so in their name, in their defense, in their enforcement. And so there are certainly ways to do that. We work with um, you know, our partners to actually write those into law so that the mechanism is there for them to, to use. Are there examples of successful cases where an ecosystem or a species was the litigant? Absolutely. Um, you know, and Ecuador has had their constitutional provisions in place since September 2008, and there's, that's where we've seen most of the litigation occur. And you have people who have gone to court on behalf of and in the name of ecosystem. Um, The first case that was decided in Ecuador um, by the court was for the Vilcabamba River, in which the river was able to bring a case on its own behalf and people stood, you know, um, figuratively in the, the in the shoe, you know, in the in, within in the river to bring the case on behalf of and in the name of the river. And the court found that indeed, due to certain government, um, there were government activities that were interfering with the natural flow and the quality of the river and found that those government actions were violating the, the constitutional rights of the river um, and required certain, um, you know, certain actions to be taken to, to rectify that. Um, and we've had other cases go forward as well um, in Ecuador. There's been a number now that have gone forward in which the courts have um, upheld and affirmed the constitutional rights in which cases are being brought on behalf of and in the name of nature. So yes, it's, you know, it's early days yet, but we have that. 
Um, we have that precedent being set now in places like Ecuador. And we now have, of course, um, cases um, such as in Colombia. In 2016, the Colombia Constitutional Court issued a decision finding that the Atrato River has legal rights. Now, in the country of Colombia, they don't have a rights of nature law, like a national law or within their constitution as Ecuador does. The court instead did something really interesting, which is they came to essentially a point where they didn't find that there was adequate legal remedy within Colombia's legal framework. And they wrote, as they wrote into this decision, they looked outside of Colombia at the international, what was happening within the international realm, what steps forward had been taken elsewhere to protect nature in a way that evolves the law. I think as they wrote into the decision that recognizing rights, they found that other places were recognizing rights of nature. And they, they brought that into the decision to, to, to recognize that the Atrato River itself has rights. And I think as they, they said specifically in the decision that it, it, they considered it a step forward in jurisprudence, that is an evolution of the law, that this a next step that's necessary in order to protect nature is to recognize that it has legal rights. So what about places like the U.S. where there isn't a constitutional provision on the rights of nature? And we tend not to draw as extensively in the U.S. as in some other jurisdictions on international guidance regarding rights, even human rights. So what's the strategy for recognizing a new right in the U.S. context? Our work in the United States has been a bit different than our work outside of the United States. We have worked for the past 10 plus years in the United States very much um, at the grassroots in building what we see as, you know, sort of the central elements of any people's movement for fundamental social change. So we've looked a lot at our history. Um, you and I have talked about that with the abolitionists, the suffragists, the civil rights movement in the United States, even the contemporary uh, movement for um, rights to same-sex marriage, gay rights, and so on. These movements all have some very, very common qualities. They build upward from the grassroots. That is, you know, people um, not at the national level, but at the, you know, really at the local level who join together in their communities and their regions to begin to understand that the legal system needs to change. And they begin to join forces and grow a cultural change that is essential to these movements. You know, we don't see... You know, the movement for suffrage in the United States was not championed by, you know, the United States Congress. It wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court who led the way um, uh, to end slavery. Those movements very much built upward um, from the ground to drive change upward, to create a cultural, fundamental cultural shift that drove a fundamental legal shift. And so our work in the United States has really been from the ground up. We've worked directly with communities, and this is work that is really the bulk of our work today in the United States still. We've now worked with more than 200 communities across the United States and many, many states to put forward and, and they've enacted what we call rights-based laws, laws which um, more than three dozen of which recognize legal rights of nature, but also recognize our you know, dem local democratic rights, rights um, to water, right, human right to healthy environment, 
Um, so rights-based laws, and those are now beginning to drive upward. So we have now um, in several states, communities, groups joining together to drive change to the state level, introduce proposed state constitutional amendments. When we're talking about fundamental changes, fundamental social change, fundamental legal change, those are movements, successful movements, that have built over decades and really generations. And I think that's what we're talking about now, um, generational kind of change to fundamentally change our human relationship to the natural world, which has, of course, been in place for thousands of years now. And making that kind of change isn't going to come fast, um, but it's going to take people doing this very good work, this very hard work, this necessary work to drive change upward from the local level. This sounds like an arduous process. It's a piecemeal grassroots approach. But climate change, for instance, is arguably a very pressing issue. And history has taught us that rights take a long time to establish. So is this something that we'll be able to accomplish before it's too late? You know, the same arguments, of course, were made during abolition, during women's suffrage. You know, the suffrage movement in the United States took 80 years. And you can only imagine that the women who were involved in those movements thought, we need this now. Um, I can't wait 80 years um, to have the right to vote. Um, and of course, of course they needed it then. Um, but that's not how change occurs. And that's just the unfortunate reality that we face today. Yes, we want things to move faster. We're frustrated by the pace of change. Um, and that's, you know, kind of have to learn to live with it and to be patient and to look for and be prepared for when there are moments, you know, what we call political windows of opportunity that occur, which we can leap through and make big change. Um, but that big change only comes with the smaller, slower change. You know, in our cultures today of kind of immediacy, you know, uh, you know, social media, you know, we have this sense that, you know, everything is immediate today, um, that all our needs are being met immediately. And we get frustrated when things seem slow or the Internet seems slow. You know, I think that creates an unreal expectation about how change can occur. Um, and we've had to learn that. We need to continue to learn that, um, that the pace of change is slow. And we need to continue to do this hard, arduous work, hoping and knowing that there will be moments um, that will allow it to take big, big steps forward. But if the groundwork isn't laid, if this work, this organizing that is occurring right now isn't happening, then we're not going to be prepared for those and ready for those. I will say, however, all that said, within 10 years of the first rights of nature law being advanced, we now have rights of nature laws or court decisions, not only in the United States, but in Ecuador and Colombia and in India, uh, Bolivia. And so there's been a, a fast rate of change. Um, all of that comes, you know, it's, it's hard work and we'll see how it how it plays out but there has been a lot of rapid change but it needs to be you know it needs to to quicken and in those laws those court decisions that have been issued that have been enacted need to be fully realized the promise of um, and so we have you know so much work to do but without doing this hard work we're really just you know tweaking around the edges of legal systems which today legalize climate change how do you talk to skeptics who aren't so convinced that the rights of nature need to exist? Well, what we have found in the United States in particular is 
it might be surprising that, you know, the first places that have enacted rights of nature laws have not, you know, what we would consider progressive, liberal kinds of communities. Um, they very much have been in very rural, more conservative kinds of places in the United States. And people have come to this recognition of the need to recognize the rights of nature when they found that they're not able to protect nature where they live, and that it's really out of practical necessity. Uh, in order for them to be able to protect nature, they need to recognize that nature has rights because environmental laws otherwise don't allow it. And therefore, it was out of necessity. And, and for many, many people, um, that continues to be out of necessity. Um, and so that, I think, is very important um, that this be, has become, you know, in some ways transcends politics or partisan differences when we're threatened within our own communities. Um, and the law as it exists doesn't allow us to protect our communities, protect the water that we depend on in the air or so on. That causes a shift within people uh, and to see things, you know, to, to come to a place where they see that something really different needs to happen. Great. Thanks, Mari, for taking the time to inform us on this developing field of rights. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. <laughs>